Hi, Vanessa. Hey, Dom. How's it going? I still haven't slept. Mm. I'm feeling the Christmas spirit. It's starting. It's starting to happen. Oh, my God. How how nice for you. (laughs) I'm starting to listen to the Christmas carols. I'm excited to get our tree later today. Well, if I'm not too lazy, I'll try producing a Christmas rendition of our theme tune. Yay. I can't wait for the the, the sleigh bells. Like, oh, like a and then that's where you come in with the theme song. I mean, I, I don't feel I need to do it anymore. You just you <laughs> yeah, clearly nailed that was it. Not, that was not the Christmas spirit incarnate. Well, for our Chris, uh, pre-Christmas special, we mm. have... It's a really pre-Christmas special. We're going to have like seven more episodes before Christmas, probably. Well, considering that Christmas in the States apparently starts around June, <laughs> I think this counts. So today we have Paul Bloom. Paul Bloom. Professor Bloom. Hailing from Yale University. He's a professor of developmental psychology, but he's quite multifarious in his interests, which span from ethics and morality to the early development of human emotions. In his new book, he is going to... Well, actually, I'm not going to spoil that. That's that's the news we broke. Oh, it's so exciting, though. It was so exciting. We started the conversation like all ready to talk about his previous book. Like one of the first things he said is like, oh, well, I'm working on a new book. And it was very exciting little sneak peek. We broke news on uncertain things. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and yeah, we forgot to mention. Welcome to Uncertain Things. I'm Vanessa. And that's Adam. (laughs) And today we have Paul. Okay, so Paul Bloom's (laughs) I think his big famous book is Against Empathy, which we did discuss extensively. His major thesis is that the much-exalted human capacity for empathy, for intellectually and emotionally putting yourself in someone else's shoes, is actually ethically problematic. And really, F's up, can can I swear? I have no idea. F's up with our ability to make rational decisions. Vanessa, do you want to take the next one? Sorry, Zeb Stegman wants to get out. Can can we pause for a second (laughs) while he leaves? Go ahead, Zeb. This is what happens when you when you podcast from home, people. I'm such a swank professional operation we're running. I'm going to just keep going. We also asked Paul Bloom about his work studying the rudimentary moral notions that are innate to us as human creatures, which is research that he conducted by observing and studying babies and seeing how they interact with moral dilemmas. And then because it's, it's getting Christmassy and because we're talking about babies and everything, so obviously it put us in the mind to discuss the Holocaust and the worst in human nature. So we talk about the idea of dehumanization and whether or not that's a, a real thing. Because Paul Bloom, being Paul Bloom, has thoughts. Sorry, so I'm still trying to leave the room. I don't know why it was taking him so long. <laughs> Oh my god, that was some of my best material, Vanessa. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I heard something about the spirit of Christmas, and, and, and I'm for it. Not, not exactly what I said. Right, 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 right. Yeah, darkness, suffering. Uh, well, isn't that what Christmas is really all about? <laughs> okay, so apologies for the disaster, but 
If you deeply crave chaos, please follow us on uncertain.substack.com or Uncertain Things wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and if you're generous, if you're feeling the Christmas spirit, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Also, you can follow us at UncertainPod on Twitter and Instagram. And you can follow Paul Bloom on Twitter at Paul Bloom at Yale. And we have some cool episodes coming up after Paul Bloom, too. That's going to be a very busy Christmas for, for me in the edit room. Yeah. And with that, we bring you Paul Bloom. Hey, Paul Bloom, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, we, I just a uh, uh, bit of a disclaimer to begin with. I need to apologize. Um, I have two uh, co- cognitive diminutions that I need to apologize in advance. And the, the, the one is that I am at the verge, like at the tail end of, of crazy insomnia. So I'm going to be exceptionally stupid. Oh, so I, I apologize. Have, I have been there. I have been there. Lots of sympathy. And, and the second <laughs> is that I had a childhood friend called Tom Blumenthal which has caused me to refer to you on several occasions as Tom Bloom. And if that happens during the interview, please feel free to chastise my idiocy. I might be sufficiently amenable as a guest that I will agree to change my name temporarily rather than... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm Canadian. and I'm, I'm very, I'm very, very good. That's fine. I'll be Tom for a while. But, but the insomnia, I, I know what that's like. I, I get bad insomnia. And if there's something you want to be sharp for, and you feel this groggy heaviness around you. Ah, oh, it's rough. Yeah, it's it's devastating. And we're gonna pull through, maybe. Definitely gonna, uh, definitely gonna pull through. Maybe. <laughs> Luckily, I slept okay That's last good. night, so hopefully, I'll pull us through. <laughs> so, to get us started, um, can you give us a brief bio for our listeners? Um, I'm from Montreal. Was an undergraduate at McGill. I'm now a professor of psychology and cognitive science at Yale University. Um, currently living in Toronto in COVID times uh, of my fiance. Um, and I'm interested in a lot of things, including uh, child development and uh, morality, psychology of art, psychology of pleasure. I have a book uh, coming out next year on suffering and why we like it. Oh. And, uh, and longstanding interest in sort of cases where psychology intersects with moral questions and questions of sort of human significance. When you say why we like it. I know, I got a little too excited about it. Yeah, yeah. First of all, yes. (laughs) You mean mean why we like inflicting it or why we like perceiving it? Uh, Oh, okay. No, that's that's actually actually a great question. Um, Why we like inflicting it is something which I actually am very interested in and um, in in the sort of morality side of my work. But this book is why we like um, experiencing it. Mm. And, And I need it in two ways. I mean, I'm very interested in why sometimes pain is a source of pleasure. Everything from BDSM to uh, hot baths to spicy foods and stuff like that. Um, But I'm also interested in the idea that a meaningful and good life involves suffering and pain, that we choose suffering and pain over pleasure as part of a quest for a good life. That kind of ties into some of the um, Buddhist philosophy that you brought into your empathy book as well, where this idea of suffering being, uh, or or at least a a different type of emotional status quo, kind of being a good way to to operate through the world. It very much does. I mean, the importance of suffering as a a moral good and also as a way to live a, a good life is something which is present in a lot of religions and, and it's very strong in Buddhism. Do you get into the distinctions between 
different types of suffering, like productive or meaningful suffering compared to banal suffering. I'm reminded of a conversation that I once had with one of our recurring guests, Misha Thomas. I called him to complain about an annoyance I had at work. And after ranting for about an hour, he told me, well, all I can wish for you is may you suffer more nobly next time. <laughs> yeah, um, there's good suffering, there's bad suffering. So, so one of the claims I make in my book is that the right sort of suffering that you seek out is part of a, a good life, not part of pleasure. But suffering that you don't want, unchosen suffering, just sucks. I have no patience with the post-traumatic growth people, with the idea that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It doesn't fit common sense. There's very little evidence for it. So unchosen suffering, getting, getting assaulted, having your kid die, having your house burned down, or even being on hold with Comcast for 45 minutes, just sucks. doesn't make you a better person. Better off to avoid it. Right sort of suffering is good. So the right sort of suffering is something that you need to intentionally seek out? Yes. That's right. That's right. Um, chosen suffering is the best thing. Sometimes unchosen suffering might help you, but for the most part, bad stuff that happens to you is simply bad. Don't let psychologists persuade you otherwise. There's a bunch of my colleagues who say, oh, this is great, you know. You, you get cancer, you get, you know, your kid dies. This is just, oh, you're so lucky in some way. You'll become such a better person. But people have done these studies. You don't actually come out a better person. It's kind of sad, but, but uh, I, you know, I get accused of making unconventional claims, but this one is a very obvious claim. Bad stuff is bad for you. And when you say better, you you're you're mean in terms of morality. Like you don't come up come out a more moral person at the end. You might come out a more resilient person. Well, a lot of people will say both of those things. They'll say that it'll make you more resilient, make you stronger, and um, it will make you uh, better, make you kinder, make you more understanding of others. The evidence is very weak for any of those claims. There's some evidence that for resilience, a little bit of evidence. Um, so there was a very nice study where they gave people, say, a list of, I forget numbers, say, 30 events in your life, bad events in your life. And then they, and you have to tick off how many you had, like, you know, have you ever, you know, been in a hospital for a month? Have you ever had your house burned down? And everybody has a different number. And then they tested your pain tolerance. And what they found was uh, uh, yeah, a U-shaped curve, sorry, an inverted U-shaped curve, which is the people who had nothing bad ever happened to them, um, had pretty low pain tolerance. The people that had tons of bad stuff happening to them also had low pain tolerance. It's the mm -hmm. people in the middle who are basically better with pain. Maybe not enough mm -hmm. suffering to break them, but enough suffering to, to allow for pain. So, so I don't want to tell, I, I realize I'm overstating, there may be some evidence, some degree of suffering might be good for you in the long run, for resilience. So what is the kind of suffering that you do seek out? And sorry, we're, we're, we did not expect to, to drag you into this, but it's, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm personally a big fan of suffering. So. Okay, that's good. A breakup, a, a, a grave breakup, is that something that you, could, you would consider potentially, because I, I assume that if you've been dumped, yeah. it's not something that you intended, it's not something that yeah. you sought out. And yet I can imagine ways in which it does make you better. It's not just in the in sense of resilience. It's also, it gives you an opportunity to reflect on yourself, to view the world with some different kind of awe. Does that fit in the category of desirable suffering or is this something else? I think that's something else. I think... It's so funny we're talking about this because the book doesn't come out for a year. So this is actually <laughs> the first time I've ever spoken to anybody about this. So this is great. Exciting. Like, like it's very exciting. Um, but I would just want to say that a bad breakup 
has no good features. And, but what happens is people have a capacity, you're illustrating it right now, we're wonderful storytellers. And so what we do is you tell a story where it benefits, you know. Um, my, book, my book goes over this guy, uh, James Costello. He's standing in the finish line at the Boston Marathon. A few years ago, the bombs go off. He's horribly burned. Um, and so he gets hospitalized, meets a nurse, falls in love. They fall in love with each other. They get married. Put it, puts on Facebook. It wouldn't have been there if it wasn't for the accident, for the, for the bombing. Everything happens for a reason. And, you know, it's a very natural way to see things, to tell stories where your pain has a positive benefit. So after the bad breakup, a year later, you're saying, it sucked, but I wouldn't be where I am now. I wouldn't have this extra resilience and so on if it hadn't happened to me. But I don't think these stories are necessarily true. So that's a, the, almost the Danny Kahneman element of, of, of the, the narrative self, right? Like you, you, you just build it around that, that trauma, but it really has nothing to do with it. That's and you right. could have created a, as impactful a story without it. That's exactly right. And we see the storytelling for all sorts of things. Like um, there's a lot of evidence that at least for people who live pretty good lives, that the quality of the parenting doesn't affect their personality that much. It's more randomness plus, plus genes. But if you ask somebody, why are you so anxious all the time? Or why are you so messed up? They'll say, oh, because of my mom. My mom really did this. Or my dad did this. If you ask somebody why they're so successful, they say, oh, mom and dad, my upbringing. Because it's hard to tell a story saying it's my genome mixed with random crap. So we tell stories, and the stories are sort of family stories. We tell morality stories. Um, you know, history, why did the Civil War happen? Why did Trump lose? Why did Trump win? You know, why did all these things happen? And basically, we tell sort of simple stories that satisfy us. And what they have in common is not in our truth. So it's not the tragic that you're talking about. You're not talking about finding poetry and meaning in the tragedy of existence. So what kind of suffering are you referring to? talking about some suffering that most of all is part of what you get when you have a difficult and challenging pursuit. So a good example, one good example is training for a marathon, which is just a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. You know, you're out of shape like me. It's just awful. Um, but it's also really rewarding. It's both awful and rewarding. Raising a kid. All these studies show... I was going to ask about that yeah, one. Yeah, raising yeah. a kid is classic because there's all these studies showing that, you know, you, you, they have these beeper studies. Beeper randomly goes off and he says, how happy are you? And people say, I think honestly, having kids is the best thing in their life. But when they're with their kids, particularly when they're with young kids, it's they're miserable. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a beautiful young kid. I've had two sons. It's, it's awful. But, and, but it, it, and, it's, and people say, oh my God, it's such a paradox. You know, it's so miserable to be doing it, but it's so, people say it's so meaningful, but it's not a paradox. In fact, the miserableness is in some way, if having a kid was incredibly easy and always fun, and always satisfying, it wouldn't be very valuable. Mm. We, we see value in, in difficulty. So that's the kind of suffering, which is good. The suffering of raising children, going to war, um, running a marathon, writing a book. Difficult projects that are hard. You inserted going to war there. Yeah. In passing. I, <laughs> yeah. I feel like one of those things there is not like the others. No, but except I do see a link because it's, a, it's like a sense of purpose. 
um, and also outcome, hmm. right? You might not feel the same if you lost the war, but you would you would feel yeah. that way if you won the war. So it's you're you have a sense of higher calling, and then there's a positive outcome at the end. That's how I would see the linkage. That's exactly right. So again, a distinction: you're drafted, they send you off somewhere. Well, it's not you know you're, you're just unlucky. Um, that's not going to help you in any way. Um, but but a lot of people, a lot of people, particularly young people, particularly young men, want to go to war. What they're looking for is meaning in their life. I mean, I read recently that you, do either of you play video games? Mm-hmm. Our roommates do. You do a little at all, yeah. So a little bit. So you know the Marvel movies, they're pretty big, right? Call of Duty made more money than all the Marvel movies put together. And Call of Duty is a it's the thing you use, it's a it's a war simulator. Mm. And I think there's an itch, particularly for the kind of people who play video games, to go to war. And for one reason or another, they can't or they don't want to take the real world risk, so they simulate it. But why is Call of Duty fun? Because it, it's in some way a simulation of what goes on for real world struggle. Huh. So the difference between the good kind of suffering and the say the breakup example is the breakup is the failure and there is nothing good about the failure. But the fights in a relationship, if the relationship continues, do count as the good kind of suffering. You know, I never thought of it. But yeah, I, I would say that a relationship that went incredibly smoothly no fights, no trouble, everything. It sounds great, but in the end, you wouldn't value it that much. Well, a relationship, as all relationships, which have its difficulties and the struggles, if it hits a sort of sweet spot, that's what my book is called, the sweet spot. If it is a sweet mm-hmm. spot, if it's too bad, you end the relationship. If it's too good, you don't value the relationship. The great thing, it's what gives it meaning. You know, I, I view my, I forget about relationships, I view being a father, I, I have two older sons, both adults now, And I view being a father like one of the most important things in my life. I think part of it is because raising them is always difficult. Raising kids is always difficult. A theme that Vanessa and I have been really interested in is the sense of cultural or emotional vacuum that, that permeates our social conversation right now. So we've been wondering if it's a social malaise, a loss of meaning and purpose. Is the over-smoothening of edges in, in a lot of our interactions in society part of that? I don't, know, I don't want to go too far into down the safetyism path because it's a, a lot of it is just gener- a general tendency towards immediacy, comfort, and a discomfort aversion. Do you see this absence of suffering, this absence of friction in many of our daily interactions as part of that malaise? Assuming you agree that there is a malaise. That's a really good question. I don't, there are many people who say there is a malaise. There's a loss of meaning in everyday life. David Brooks says it. Um, uh, this guy, uh, I'm mangling his name, but Jonathan Hara or Harry, I wrote a book on depression where he talks about this crisis of meaning. And then some people would say it's like what you said, which is a frictionless life without troubles. Um, if that's true, by the way, it makes empirical prediction, which is <laughs> 2020 has been quite the event. And it would suggest that 2020, couldn't people coming out of 2020 will have, find more meaning in their life. And in support of this, so I'm, I'm, I want to be agnostic as to whether there's such a malaise and just sort of speak the logic of what you're asking. And, but in support of that logic, it turns out that when you ask which countries are the happiest, uh, the more money, more GDP, the happier people are. It's an incredibly robust finding. You know, you want to you want to go to a happy country, go to Canada, go to Switzerland, whatever. Find those, mm-hmm. you know. But when you ask people how much meaning does your life have, it's an inverted relationship. The more money the place has, 
the less meaning people say they have. And this supports what you're saying, which is difficulty is in some way the antithesis of pleasure, but what could lead to meaning. So I'm going to use this to drag us back to the field of ethics, the clear, simple pool of morality. <laughs> so first of all, you're, you, you approach the subject from the lens of a developmental psychologist, right? Yeah. I mean, also, also as sort of a, they call us moral psychologists. I'm interested in moral reasoning in kids and how they develop definitely, but also in adults and done a lot of research on on how adults reason about morality, but as a psychologist, not predominantly as a philosopher. And and before we dig deep into that, I'd love to get the the terms right. So you are a proponent of, of some of those ideas about moral foundations that basically say, basically John Locke is wrong. There are no blank slates. We are born with some certain ethical dispositions that then over time develop into the more sophisticated or complicated ethical intuitions that we carry through life that's right so so there's a specific theory called moral foundation theory identified with jonathan Haidt and his colleagues which involves specific claims of what the foundations are and it's not my view I, mean, i respect the work a lot but i have a different view but the way you're describing it is exactly a great characterization of my view i think we have some hardwired built-in systems for moral reasoning and plainly as adults we we go in very different directions this is kind of what my books are about Um, my last two books were about in different ways, but um, but we do have a built-in uh, moral sense. John Locke is wrong. We're not we're not blank slates. It's interesting because in one of our our first two episodes of this podcast, we we ended up talking to to folks who are either religious scholars or historians who are looking through uh, the history of religion and religious thinking, and we ended up having an interesting conversation between us and a friend about how do we how do we ha live a moral life absent of religion? Um, and and I yeah. kind of came up with the, the description of like, you know, I just feel like I'm constantly calibrating towards something in my mind that feels amoral or moral. And that's the, that's the way I've decided to live my life because I don't have like a moral framework given to me by religion. And I'm curious if in your research, you've come across this, the intersection of atheism and morality and whether, whether <laughs> the way that people re respond morally or not with the absence of moral frameworks um, still comes down to some sort of individual evaluation. There's so much in that question. Um, I'll, I'll, yeah. <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll take off one piece of it, which is the, sure. the, one of the very first popular articles I wrote was for Slate. And it was on research on whether atheists were nicer or meaner. Than, um, than religious people. And, and actually, the data is, is fairly complicated, and I talked about that. I remember, first of all, so when it came out, I was very excited, and I go to the comment section, and the very first comment, I remember them reading it, expecting the sort of level of engagement. The very first comment was, a you, with a you, and then R, you are a dumbass. And, <laughs> and, and, then so, and so the rest of the comments were instead. So the... It's difficult. The point being, people get upset if you talk about atheism and religious people and morality. But here's the weird finding. The weird finding, and that's is, when you started developing a taste for subjects that piss people off. Yes, yes, I became I became addicted to the to the pain of having people call <laughs> me names. Um, so I don't think there's much evidence that atheists are worse people than religious people. For the most part, there's not also not much evidence for the other way around. Um, You know, plainly, religion can drive people to do terrible things and have bizarre moral views that they would have never got otherwise. On the other hand, as people like Robert Wright argue, religion can, right religions at the right time, could lead people to really enlightened views they wouldn't otherwise have. 
too. And a lot of a lot of people looking at the origin of a sort of universalist morality point to religion, in particular Christianity and Islam, as forces that have expanded our thing. Because the idea is once upon a time religion was sorry, morality was tribal. You only cared about people in your village. And then over time you became Christian, say. And now you care about everyone who's Christian, which is an enormous number of people and makes you more universal. Um, but I think it's pretty plain that morality uh, exists in people without any sort of religious background. And, um, and you know, some, of the, some extremely more people are, are atheists. Uh, and in fact, typically, if you look at it, people who claim they get their morality from religion are not being entirely honest with themselves. So what they'll do is, for instance, they'll point to the Old Testament and they'll say, well, I'm getting my morality from this. And then you say, um, you say to them, well, do you think it's okay to keep slaves? They say, no, I don't accept that thing in the Old Testament. And what you point out to them is you already have a moral sense. You're using, you're using this text to calibrate it and everything like that, but you're throwing away the stuff that you know is wrong. So what are the moral rudiments that we're born with as you observe them? I think uh, we're born with, um, with some sense of caring about others, some capacity to, to have compassion towards others. Um, I'm enough, I'm, I'm sympathetic enough to people like uh, David Hume to see this, to, to agree with them that you need this sort of impetus of, uh, of, of caring in order to get morality off the ground. Sheer rationality won't do it. I think studies of babies suggest that we can, we have a rudimentary capacity to tell right from wrong, good behaviors from bad behaviors. And I've been involved in experiments that study this. There's some evidence that even before a kid's first birthday, there's some understanding of justice and fairness. And so you have these sort of moral foundations, which of course get radically changed and expanded over development. But I think these foundations are the starting point. And these starting points can sometimes lead to results that we would not necessarily consider moral too. So several examples that you bring in your book, Just Babies, show how our innate tendencies towards fairness can lead to an appetite for vengeance and cruelty and seeing people punished or cut down just because they have defied our idea of equitability. Yes. Um, it, it is, um, there's, there's a joke, an old Russian joke about these two Russian pe peasants, uh, Boris and, and Ivan, who, um, who uh, and, and Boris uh, gets a goat. Ah, never mind. The point, the point being, I can figure in the details of it. The punchline is he tells the genie, I want you to kill Boris's goat. So, so fill in, fill in the rest of it. You're all smart. Uh, <laughs> but but the, the, idea, the idea is that, that um, a notion of fairness often, want, often leads you to, um, it often leads, leads to a retaliatory impulse. And if you're utilitarian, it leads you in the wrong direction. So, you know, I make, um, I make $100, but you make $200. That pisses me off, so I want to throw away 100 of your dollars. Even though, you know, you were happy and you were, you know, why should you suffer? Because my desire to make things equal. And of course, whether or not this is a good idea is, is a matter that we debate now. We, we debate in sort of public policy issues, you know. So a lot of people would say, you know, we should take away, you know, Bill Gates' money. Or, you know, take away the billion. You shouldn't be billionaires. And there's all sorts of arguments for it. Some involving sort of utilitarian, they have too much power, they distort the political system. But some of it's saying, you know, nobody deserves to have that much money. 
We should make them less happy. The desire to make people less happy, because then they'll be the same as we are, is an interesting desire. And I think people have different intuitions about it. They'll be the same as we are, not because we think that everybody needs to be the same, because we'll be very comfortable to be better off than others. Yeah, it's well, about that's a not, not feeling that they're <laughs> doing better than us. I think one of my favorite examples from your book is, is kids, um, um, infants, I think, that would prefer receiving one candy themselves as long as the other baby also only received one, rather than getting two candies yeah. while the other kid gets three. So babies prefer to end up receiving less candy than ending up at a relative yes. disadvantage. Yes, we have this, this, these kids, these descendants like of kids. Inefficient results. That's right. It's not just kids. It's also, um, I think these are macaques, but um, monkeys. Um, and there's this classic experiment where you give a monkey, a monkey has to sort of ring a bell for something. And when it does, it gets rewarded. It gets a cucumber. Monkeys like cucumbers. These cucumbers are happy. <laughs> Who and then it watches another monkey get a grape for doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. And then it, it rings the bell. It gets a cucumber and it throws the cucumber in an experimenter's face. And they, the video is remarkable. <laughs> and it is in a rage. There's other studies with dogs where a dog does something for a treat, sees another dog get a, get a, a better treat and freaks out. I don't really think this is a fairness impulse because if it was a fairness impulse, then they should be upset if they themselves got more than the other ones. And you don't find that. You don't find that in, in, in monkeys. You don't find that in dogs. And you don't find that in humans until very old. So it's an envy impulse. It's an envy impulse. That's right. It's this form of social comparison. Is our concept of fairness, in your opinion, does it derive from the envy impulse primarily? Or is there, is there a part of us that also just responds to inequality? It's a really good question. I think when it comes to third parties, I think we have an, a, a, this, uh, uh, a capacity to discern fairness and unfairness. So there's some studies done with, uh, I think, with one-year-olds, where you just have two characters. And in one situation, uh, somebody comes in and gives each of the characters one cookie. Each of the characters one cookie. In another situation, they give two to one character and nothing to the other character. And the babies prefer the first person. The babies prefer the person who distributes things equitably rather than arbitrarily favored one. I think when we ourselves are involved, emotions like envy come in. But I think above and beyond envy, part of the foundation for our notion of impartial treatment and importance of fairness stems from a sort of aspect of human nature. All right. Can I, can I segue us, Adam? I was just going to say, I think this takes us perfectly <laughs> to, to the, the big E. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, yeah, speaking of uh, characteristics that can occasionally lead us astray. Um, so obviously your book Against Empathy is uh, one of one of your more controversial ones, potentially, because of the of because of the fact that you don't take the the common route of just assuming that empathy is inherently good. But I do want to note that you take you go to pains in the book to differentiate between cognitive empathy and emotional empathy so could you explain why it's the latter and not the former that is more problematic yeah and and thank you i mean the title against empathy was a choice sure and, you know and i i have a subtitle the case for <laughs> rational compassion which immediately should reassure the discerning reader that i'm not this isn't an apology for psychopathy or cruelty that i'm trying to be like i'm making a distinction out of that 
I have learned that a lot of people don't even read the subtitle. Yeah. So, I mean, we are, we are journalists. We know that people don't read halfway through the, the headline. Yes, it's too long. Yes, that's right. That's right. I have, I have come across people who only read, got angry at me because they only read part of a tweet. Uh-huh. You know? So, you know. Yep. Uh, um, so the distinction you're raising is a good one. You know, psychologists distinguishing two things. So one thing is what you're calling cognitive empathy. And this is sussing out what other people think. You know, so, so, you know, uh, I, oh, you know, you, you know, you're interested in this and you don't like that. And you're worried about that and you believe this. And, um, and I think cognitive empathy is a really important tool for getting along with people. I think cognitive empathy is sort of amoral. It's like, a, it's a form of intelligence. It's in fact, it's often called social intelligence or emotional intelligence. And like any sort of intelligence, it could be used for good or for evil. You know, if, if, I'm, if I'm trying to really make you happy or buy you a present or support your cause or make you feel, feel you know, pleased with yourself or to motivate you or to teach you, cognitive empathy is great. Any, any person wanting to help somebody has to know what's in your head. How could, I, how could I reassure you if I don't know what you're worried about? How could I, I give you advice if I don't know what you're thinking about? On the other hand, if I'm trying to seduce or calm or manipulate or torment somebody, cognitive empathy is also very useful. You know, it was once thought that bullies were bad at cognitive empathy. It turns out bullies are unusually good at cognitive empathy. It's what makes them good bullies. The people who are bad at cognitive empathy are the victims. Hmm. Uh, because they don't. Is Trump good at cognitive empathy? Trump is such an interesting character. Because I just think of his ability to get people to exactly have the emotional result he seems to desire yeah but i also don't know to what extent he's doing it calculatingly and to what extent he's just impulsively hitting the button that gets the, the desired result in about 30 years universities are going to have departments called trump studies <laughs> and and professors of trump studies will debate this very issue it's going to be the, the, the schism between the, the, the intentionalists just, and the <laughs> that's right that's right there'll be two schools they'll have their own journals and everything and then and then the other so so one group will say like trump has been su- extraordinarily successful he became president he beat a crowded field he just did you know and, and so he's playing 10-dimensional chess you know When, when he does these tweets and the liberals go crazy and then they, they get all upset and then he ends up distracting from other things. It's just brilliant. He knows how, he knows how to play people. He's the master troll. The other school says he's kind of this, this um, Peter Sellers type. And um, being, being, the, being there, that's right. He's, he's, he's this, this blessed fool, except who just doesn't have any conception of anybody's mind, blunders about, and somehow succeeds. So I don't know. I don't know if he has good cognitive. I tend not to think he does. He doesn't seem to understand people that well. He seems to get ahead by threats and bullying and, you know. In some way, Trump is an embarrassment for many theories of, of human psychology. <laughs> you ask somebody like me, you ask somebody like me, Why do we have cognitive empathy? I don't know. Why have we evolved? And I say, well, in order to become a successful person in the world, to, to have friends and mates and everything, you have to know how people's minds work. You have to, you have to negotiate with them and deal with them. And then Trump comes in, wins it all, with apparently none of these gifts. So anyway, cognitive empathy is a form of understanding. Emotional empathy is feeling what other people feel. So if, if, um, 
if if one of you, um, if, if Vanessa, you're you're really anxious, and I'm looking at you, and I start feeling your anxiety. Um, that's that's emotional empathy, and that's sort of feeling another's pain. And a lot of people think emotional empathy is the core to morality. And what I argue in the book, I make a lot of arguments. Well, but one argument is that that the problem with empathy of that sort is that it's very biased. I'm much more like to feel the pain of somebody I like, who's attractive, who's a friend, who's my race, who's my country, who's on my side than a stranger. And for us to have a sort of objective morality, we have to sort of move away from empathy towards a more distant compassion and also some rational deliberation. And a lot of my book is going through case by case by case, kind of arguing that. So so one of the ways that people kind of misunderstand empathy in the way that you describe it is like like we can myth bust a little bit so people might say for example that oh liberals they're the empathetic ones that they're the the left is the part or the democrats are the party of the of empathy um but you say it's not quite that clear cut can you explain why that is kind of a misconception of of empathy and how it works yeah it's it's interesting in some way both liberals and conservatives like the idea that liberals are more empathic the liberals like it because they see empathy as a core value the conservatives like because they see themselves as sort of more Mm -hmm. rational hard-headed and want to say the liberals are a bunch of tree huggers Mm -hmm. um the evidence for for a political difference in empathy is actually very weak when you give people empathy tests I think the big difference is between liberals and conservatives is who they empathize with. Um, so, um, right. so liberals might empathize with um, the victims of gun violence and say you should ban guns. Conservatives might empathize with people who are defenseless against criminals. Um, liberals might empathize with people who are uh, assaulted by police officers, while um, conservatives might empathize with police officers themselves trying to do a difficult job are people who, you know, again, you know, have their stores looted in riots. Um, in this current time, um, your feelings about a lockdown and about opening up schools and closing schools and so on probably have a lot to do with who you're worrying about, you know? Um, and it's not, it's not true. It's not true that conservatives, um, lack empathy. They just empathize with different people. And this brings us back to Trump and empathy, which is, I think, more than any other president, Trump was very good at getting people, at sparking people's empathy. So, you know, the example I I always give is like immigration, which is he he just talked a lot about the victims of crime. And he said, why is that? Because we feel bad for the victims of crime. Um, Ann Coulter wrote a book called Adios America, which was an argument against immigration. And it's basically a bunch of stories about rape and drug addiction and murder. Um, the Trump administration is always trying to do something or another, like declare a day for the victims of immigrant crime, write a list, list of the names of people who killed the immigrant crime, set up a, you know, thing for that. Because you feel bad for the victims of crime, and that feeling badness is a tool for for political means. So it's not like he's appealing to people's most monstrous impulses. He's appealing to people's empathy for those who have suffered. And this is exactly where you see empathy as leading us 
astray, right? Because if yeah. you were to look at the statistics, let's say, and say like, okay, well, crimes committed by immigrants is actually a nominal, let's say a nominal percentage of overall exactly. crime rates. We, we shouldn't allow ourselves to be so whipped up into a frenzy around these stories, which are, are designed to kind of make us empathize with the victims here. That's right. That's right. So, you know, nerd responses, well, my gosh, immigrants uh, commit fewer crimes statistically than native born people. But Empathy is insensitive to numbers. Empathy will respond to a story. When, when Trump was running for office, he would talk about Kate all the time. And his audience knew this. They, he just says Kate, and people know what he was talking about. Kate was a woman who was in San Francisco, and some apparently illegal immigrant fired off a gun that killed her. And it turned out the story was actually quite complicated. But, but it's a story, and we feel horrible for her family and for, for her. And, that, and that's a catalyst for violence. I've done experimental work showing, <coughs> and actually I'm not the only one, I mean, dozens of people find this, showing that the more empathy you feel towards a group, the more willing you are to strike out against individuals who have caused that suffering. The more you care about victims of child abuse, the more you want to take child abusers and put them in prison for the rest of their lives. And we see this play out in, in normally, you know, if if... If you're if you're uh, an Israeli hawk and you want to encourage uh, a, a more militaristic position against, say, the Palestinians, you will tell a story of what happened when the Palestinians got hold of some innocent Israeli. Similarly, if you're a Palestinian, you want to get more attacks on Israel, you will tell a story. If you, if you listen to what's going on in the rhetoric of encouraging violence, maybe surprisingly, there's so much appeal to our most tender sentiments. It's not always, uh, let's just mess them up, those guys. It's, look what they did to the people we love. I mean, it's, it's not a podcast you don't mention Hitler. And so, you know. Oh, so, we, have, so, <laughs> we have Hitler teed up for later. Especially, you know I mean? especially this podcast. <laughs> so, so you, know, you know, when Hitler was drumming up support uh, for what led to World War II, he talked about the mistreatment of Germans uh, in Poland, German citizens in Poland. Um, when when uh, the U.S. was preparing to enter World War II, they talked about the mistreatment of people. Sometimes the stories are true, sometimes they aren't. And the, both, all of our wars, when, when we drum up for a war, the stories will happen, will be told of victims. Babies taken from incubators, horrific tortures, rape, and so on. Sometimes these are real, but they're used, our empathy is used to, um, to motivate aggression and cruelty. I hope I'm not being too reductionist, but it sounds to me like the argument is empathy is just too strong of a tool that it overrides all other rational considerations. But isn't that an argument <laughs> just about human irrationality? A lot of the critique of empathy applies to other emotions, too. It, it applies to disgust. It can apply to, um, to shame and to anger. Um, these emotions aren't calibrated for sort of best results. They're not calibrated for fairness. They're not calibrated in a universal way. So they can lead us astray in all sorts of ways. So you're raising a point, which is, is this a problem of all sorts of emotions and all sorts of, of appeals? And yeah, I don't think empathy is uniquely bad in this way. Um, I focus on empathy just in part because I want to make a broader it gets too point. much of a good rap. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. It, it's like, um, if you, if you, so I've been on an emotion beat for a while in my work, and I've often argued that disgust 
is an unreliable moral cue. And to my frustration, everybody agrees with this. <laughs> like I say, like, I say, like once, upon people, once upon a time, people were disgusted. We, we were disgusted by interracial marriage. Plainly, that wasn't rational. So you see them going to discuss like gay people. That's not right. You know, and everybody nods. And when it occurs to me that that a lot of the sins of disgust manifest themselves in different ways with empathy. And so I figured if I could convince people with empathy, convince of anything and get them to sort of shift their perspectives, you know, to other ways of making moral decisions. So I had a, a question for you coming from what both of us being journalists or having journalism backgrounds. I, as I was reading and I was thinking about, you know, the problems with empathy, it's very narrow. You can't think in large numbers. You have to think about one person. It's very biased. It's like, it makes you um, empathize. You empathize more with people who are like you. And I was thinking a lot about the tools of journalism and what, what is it when you make a story that's successful? It's, you know, you have that, you have that lead, you have that person's story that hooks you in and then in theory you can like build out a whole argument but you're still threading this story through it um and i was curious to get your thoughts like considering the ways that empathy can 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 lead us down amoral pathways what does that mean for journalism like what is a journalism that would be potentially more lead to more moral action. Right. And I, I will even just throw in this little comment that there is a concept in, in traditional journalism. I don't know if it even applies anymore because journalism now is Twitter, but it <laughs> used, you used to be this concept of, uh, of the, the nut graph, which is yeah. where you tie in the, the, the anecdotal impact of the story into something a little bigger and to make a little uh, somewhat of a bigger argument and it would usually come in you know paragraph five or six into the story because the first six paragraphs are setting the stakes of the, sto the of individual this stakes story. right of the person of this, yeah. the the anecdotal story i think journalism practice that way is a fundamentally immoral pursuit mm -hmm. um and you know and that and you know the first rule of anything is never criticized journalists because because <laughs> they are the ones who write about you, um, and and but but for exactly the ways you're outlining, you know, um, you want me to get a New York Times article on how terrible Obamacare is? Probably not New York Times or something, you know. But well, tell a story. It's a little girl, mm -hmm. and there's a little girl. And let me tell you a story. And she's there. You set the scene. You tell the story. You need, you got great detail and everything. And the medical system failed her, and then. And then you and you tell that story, but the problem with that is, or you tell a story of Kate on San Francisco, standing next to her father, set the stage, how the weather and everything, up until the point the gun, you know, the bullet kills her, and then you talk about it, and or the brave immigrant who jumps into the water and saves seven people, whatever. You could choose your your conclusion ahead of time, and. Um, and and then use the story to guide it. I mean, and we I saw how the the Europe's entire immigration policy changed based on one picture of the body of a migrant child being swept to the shores of uh, Turkey. Yes, it changed. Yes. It changed. It essentially changed history because not only did it prompt the European Union and Germany in particular to open up its borders in response it also created the backlash in response to the change of policy so yes. a lot of the past 10 years have been shaped based on one picture one tragic anecdote that triggered a worldwide yes. empathic response yes. and people and people tend to like it when the picture or the story sways people to their uh to their side you know um you know, so I, I, I know the picture you're talking about and 
I might say, well, that was a really good result. It called attention to the plight of, uh, of immigrants. And, um, but when I hear a story of some immigrant who, you know, rapes somebody, I say, oh, that's a bad story because that story is used to support, because then it goes on and you get the nut graph and ideas we should expel immigrants from our country. Now, I make a distinction and between, so I'm being somewhat facetious when I say journalism is, is fundamentally immoral. That kind is a different kind builds an argument based on data, on statistical data, and then may, it maybe illustrates the argument, if it's making an argument, through stories. And that's, that's fine. I mean, if you have data suggesting that, I don't know, all of a sudden, everybody in a certain place wants to vote for Trump. And then you interview and tell a story of somebody who wants to vote for Trump. That's okay. But, um, but, but, but the sort of parody of journalism is, you know, is, well, everybody says, uh, you know, Trump's going to win. But I talked to this cab driver. And boy, what a story he told me. So I don't think Trump's going to win anymore and persuade people. The problem with stories is you're too easy. You could pluck one pro-Obamacare, anti-Obamacare, whatever. You just pluck them out. The problem with data, though, is, well, first, most journalists aren't data analysts and they're not academics. So they really need to rely on others to do the work and, and then build on top of the iterative conclusions published on top of the studies of real analysts. When, when you have that situation, you can easily select the experts that you build your yes. argument on. Yes. And, but even the experts themselves, often, as we know, can be completely, it's not even intentionally biased, but just methodologically pushed into one direction rather than another. And we, we, know, we know the flaws in a lot of these studies because, you know, the fields like psychology, yeah. sociology don't really give us clear-cut answers into what is the best policy. They give us some suggestions, some vague direction sometimes. But obviously, even with your case about um, um, empathy, I'm sure you have a lot of opponents within your field who sure. don't share your perspective. Yep. And yeah. I'm sure you respect them as much as they respect you, even though you disagree wholeheartedly. Yeah. So this yeah. coda of just, just rely on the data, you face a problem of how much confidence do you want to actually project because when it becomes clear to people just how much interpretation is involved in reaching any conclusion from the quote-unquote data, then people become more and more skeptical, and they just fall back to the outlets who broadcast that conclusion they agree with. Everything you're saying is right, but I think you're being too cynical. <laughs> I think in the end, there often is a foundation. Um, you you could choose to, to write a story, to tell a story, and then say there's a wave of immigrant crime going through the United States. But it is a sort of statistical claim that any responsible journalist should click to see if it's true. Sometimes you'll find 10 experts who say it is and 10 experts who say it is, and that is complicated. But sometimes, actually, there are, there are data. There are sort of, there's a consensus among experts. And, and you, you can, um, you don't have to rely on anecdotes. I think climate change is a very good climate example of this, example. right? Classic yeah. example. Yeah. Which you also, yeah. you say in the book that you think uh, the fact that people don't give a crap about climate change is actually because because of empathy and the way that empathy The absence works. of anecdotes, right? Right. Or not necessarily the absence of anecdotes, but the inability to, to think in abstract terms about these large things that are happening in the world. Right. The absence of an object of empathy. Yes. I mean, why choose? I, you're, you're both right. I, there's so many reasons we don't care about climate change. 
One is there's no, Dan Gilbert, friend of mine, gives a list, but one is that there's no villain. Mm. There's no, you know, it, it's like you could believe in, in, you know, some crazy dictator or, I don't know, Donald Trump or Joe Biden, something you, you don't like, but climate change is just, there's no villain. And that's abstract. It's abstract and future-oriented. You know, how can I make you cry by telling you a story about climate change? Say, imagine somebody 30 years in the future, you know, all I got is graphs and tables. And it's, it's, it's very difficult to get people to care. In some way, climate change is almost the opposite of, um, of issues about police violence, where you have these salient videos, which are the most salient things in the world. And is incredible. you see people suffering. It's incredibly moving. And so, um, and so it wouldn't surprise me if people's intuitive priorities say this is a much bigger problem than climate change. Show me a, show me a YouTube video that's going to make me cry about climate change. But I also think we could agree this is a crap way to get our priorities straight. But how do you tap out of it? I'm, 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 let's say I'm very much convinced by your argument. How do, we, how do we make the necessary changes in our conversation, in our habitual moral thinking to, to prioritize data, let's say, than yeah. empathic impact? I think, I think to some extent it's, it's a cultural question. So there are some cultures and some groups and some, some areas of life where, where, where people do appeal to facts. There's the effect of altruist movement, where they care about the effects of charity. And now enough has percolated, even people who never even heard of effective altruism probably would care whether a charity was actually doing good work or not. Um, I think people... I think, you know, you see some of this with the COVID issue where you have all sorts of debates, but I have a feeling people look at the graphs and look at the numbers and can be moved by them. I also think, and maybe this is even easier, on a par with encouraging statistical thought and abstract thought and sort of logical argument, you could discourage certain appeals to bias. So right now in America, if a politician said, a mainstream politician said, look, we really got to do this because it will advantage white people at the cost of black people. You can't do this in any political party. Blatant racist appeals are not accepted. You could dog whistle sometimes, but you have to hide it because it's not approved of. I could imagine a cultural change where this happens too with anecdote. So you mm-hmm. see this, and I think I, I, have a, I have a feeling- You stigmatize the anecdote itself. Yes, so when a politician says, you know, well, <clears throat> you know, they want to reduce funding in my district, But let me read to you a letter I received from a seven-year-old. If the crowd starts booing at that point, and none of this is universal. I think, I, I think um, there's a lot of ways in which I'm deeply pro-American. But regarding political discourse, often other countries, you see a much higher level of political discourse than, than America. Particularly, many, many of the sort of debates and rhetoric seems to be almost at, at, at a level that's insulting to a lot of people. And if politicians started to be punished for, for you know, terrible arguments and, and cherry-picked anecdotes, they would do less of it. Less snowballs in Congress. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. So, so somebody brings a snowball <laughs> to say climate change is a myth. Well, if they get rewarded for it, they're going to bring in more snowballs. Or they bring out Joe the plumber. There's, okay, are right here, talking about American politics. There's a ritual, which I hate, um, in the State of the Union speech, 
where with, with each president, Democrat, they bring in a bunch of victims. Mm-hmm. And then we applaud the victims. So this is a person and they, they're, you know, their, um, their husband is a veteran who was killed by people in Iraq. And then we all applaud. So we just go and kill the Iraqis. You know, this person, the Democrat says, this is a kid whose life was saved because of my new healthcare plan. And we mm-hmm. all applaud. And it's, it's a zero content and it's exploitative. It never convinces anybody, by the way, unless you're already on their side or boost up support, maybe. But if you're against it, you're not going to feel for these people at all. I can I can supplement this with a recent example from from Israel, where where I'm from, is the <laughs> there was recently. Uh, I'm, I'm going to botch the details, but the essence of it is that somebody spoke out against uh, the current government's regulations, the Corona regulation. And in Israel, the the dynamic is flipped, where the right is for lockdown and the left is against it, just because this is how the government... Oh, that's interesting. So this, this person spoke against the Netanyahu government for being too harsh on small businesses and too insensitive. And a crowd of Netanyahu supporters went out and protested every night in front of his house. They were like, shame on you for whatever. Yeah. And then it came out that he was the i think the son or i think i think his his father died in 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 some terror attack or in the military or something some tr- personal tragedy that involved that patriotism yeah and suddenly all the protesters apologized yeah. we're sorry we're, we should not have mobbed you since you had this personal tragedy not because you're a human being and yes. we should not be clamoring in your house just for voicing your opinion but now that we know you suffered some patriotic tragedy, we, we fold back. Yeah. It was so, I don't know, perverse to yeah. watch. Yeah. And this is the way a lot of politics happens. And, you know, your example is, is a, it's a great example of irrationality and the stakes are kind of low. But, but you see the same thing when the stakes get really high. Um, people are driven to war by stories. You know, I have a friend, a friend of mine who I disagree with a lot, Simon Baron Cohen, and he's very much a champion of empathy. And um, we've gone back and forth a few times. And he gives Israel as a case um, where he says there should be more empathy. You could like dial up the empathy on both sides. They would care about, about everybody and they would stop fighting. But of course, if you dial up the empathy, you would basically get Israelis who cared even more about other Israelis. And Palestinians get even more about other Palestinians. You know, the people on the other side aren't, you know, trying to kill you because they don't care. They're trying to kill you because they do care, just not about you. I, I think I think there's a small yeah, there's a small distinction there that you that we didn't really hit on. A conflation that you sometimes get from I guess people who speak in defense of empathy is between empathy itself and universal sentiment where often they are in complete tension with each other and some tribalism actually derives from empathy. That's right. That's right. I think that, that actually, the last thing you said is exactly right. Dial up empathy, you dial up tribalism. Because empathy is particular. Empathy zooms you in on some people. I can't feel empathic towards the people of Africa. I can't feel empathic towards the people of the world. I can feel empathic towards you or my son of specific people or maybe towards a specific girl in africa that you've seen a documentary about yes and that's and in fact people try to use empathy in that way you know since 
So people, empathy is used as a tool, and we've been talking a lot of ways it could be used as a tool for evil. I don't doubt it could be used as a tool for good. And sometimes you say, well, I wish somebody give more money to the Africans, say, people in tremendous need. And so I'll do, I'll show a picture of a specific person. And, and it's called, in psychology, we call that the identifiable victim effect, where, um, where you do a study where you say, will you help five people? And another group, we say, will you help one person? But let me tell you the one person's name and show you her picture. And then people give more to the one than to the five. I mean, it, I think the, the example that you've probably heard when people are trying to defend empathy and the ways that it can be wielded for good, I'm sure Black Lives Matter movement has come up multiple times because how can you not that seems like a, a incredibly salient example of uh of a feeling of empathy being stirred up in people and, and galvanizing a movement that had that pe- most people had not even thought about or considered before and kind of galvanizing people that didn't necessarily who weren't necessarily black like white people people of all colors were all of a sudden yeah. feeling empathetic towards this movement right and we we had this com- and very interesting conversation with tom holland the historian on the podcast and he actually made the point that mm-hmm. he he thinks that um a lot of western civilization a, a lot of it the the the, the kind of the, the stories that motivate uh, our western society do derive from christianity and this idea of essentially empathizing with the oppressed like that is a story that we can really get behind yeah. because we've been steeped in christian narratives and even if we're no longer uh, some people are no longer christian in america that's still a very salient story that we tell ourselves and i was curious to get your take on that like in a way if we're gr- brought up in a culture where we're we're told hey like you should empathize with the oppressed the oppressed are uh, are, are are your tribe if you will um wouldn't wouldn't shouldn't yeah. that allow us to empathize more with the people that aren't don't necessarily look like us or of our, are of our immediate circle so there's so many things in there and and I'm I'm very curious how much empathy plays a role in support for Black Lives Matter because remember mm. we have other emotions in our toolkit. Mm. One is anger at injustice. That could get you going a fair amount. Um, and I'm not sure how much that plays a role. One is one is just that, you know, I think responses to perceived unfairness, um, compassion, concern. I guess I also wonder, I mean, there's something which we haven't talked about. And I don't actually talk about in my book, which is consider the claim that I empathize with um, a black teenager pulled over and roughed up by the police. Do I? I'm, I'm you know, a, a, a privileged white guy. I, I, I see the police and my heart rates, you know, slows down. It doesn't speed up. I'm, you know, I never had problems with police. Um, do I really put myself in the shoes of this person? It seems arrogant to assume I do. While we're at it, you know, do I know what it's like to be sexually harassed? If somebody who's sexually, a woman who's sexually harassed at work says, try to put yourself in my shoes, feel what I feel. Can I succeed? There's so much evidence suggesting we are absolute crap at this. We are very bad at feeling what it's like to be somebody very different from us. And so I think to the extent we resonate, I think a better demand is to say, Look what's happening to me. Can't you see that it's unfair and unjust? I think that that's what goes on in these successful movements. People might call it empathy, but they're really responding to to injustice. Interesting, because I feel if you open this point up, then it makes me also wonder about your previous example of the reactions to the attack on Kate. 
is is that necessarily empathy too or is that a sense of a reaction to an other it could be just more sheer tribalism and a rage at a, t- a different team coming in and hurting our own yeah that's a fair point that's a fair point a lot of the examples that people like Ann Coulter and Donald Trump use I think are empathic appeals but you're exactly right they may be more to it it's often a tribalistic appeal um, there's a lot of evidence that um, when somebody from our own group is victimized putting aside empathy it enrages us and makes us really want to sort of strike back it's a threat to the group maybe even if you don't feel empathy maybe if I don't you know if I hear somebody being assaulted I don't have to sort of imagine what it's like to be assaulted maybe just the very thought of it just enrages me and that could be used so you're right and in the real world outside from the lab pulling apart for better or worse effects of empathy and other things going on is, is difficult that's a fair point you There's also a point that you've made that empathy as an, a moral energizer is, ha- is actually somewhat negative because it gets you more anxious. It gets you more frustrated. It doesn't necessarily motivate you to act in the right way, which is a point yeah, yeah. that I was interested in. That isn't, you, you guys mentioned, mentioned Buddhism uh, before, and there's a distinction actually made in, in Buddhist theology, which is the distinction between what they call sentimental compassion, which is empathy. which is really getting caught, got caught up in the pain of other people, and great compassion, which is like compassion. And so when you see the sort of um, representatives of, of moral greatness in that tradition, it's people who are like grinning like idiots. They're really happy and they're cheerful and everything, and they're helping people, and they're just helping people all the time. And I think the insight here is that suffering along with people as you help them exhausts you. It makes you less effective, makes you miserable. And... Um, And there's actually, you know, even neuroscience evidence. So there's a, a wonderful collaboration I talk about in my book between Tanya Singer, who's a neuroscientist, and Matthew Ricard, who's a Buddhist monk. And they do experiments where they pull apart empathy and compassion, you know, looking at different parts of the brain getting activated. But I think more interestingly, finding that when you feel another person's pain, it often leads you wanting to step away and to avoid it. Um, well, if you feel genuine love and care for the person and don't feel their pain, You might want to make them feel better I think we're now stepping into the 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 other topic we wanted to talk about which is your your article about demonization and basically tuning people out so I'm, I'm, I'm gonna put that and we're gonna get there in one minute I just want to ask you quickly one last thing somewhat regarding those words No, you know what? No, let's go there now. I'm, <laughs> I'm rearranging things in my brain. <laughs> um, you may have insomnia, but you're, you're still running through I'm, it. I'm, I'm fighting, I'm fighting. Um, I'm, 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 this is pleasurable suffering that I'm going through. Um, Good. So, what's your concern with the way we think and talk about dehumanization? Yeah, um, I'm very interested in cruelty. And why we're cruel to each other and you know, bring back to the suffering that we so inflict on. not that we desire that we inflict but not we desire. I was gonna actually write on that and the topic is this actually so unpleasant and upsetting it takes me like two mm. years to write a book and I don't want to spend two years thinking about about you know awful things that shows that you're not an Israeli <laughs> um, yeah um, well so there's 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 one view on suffering. And cru- sorry, cruelty, which is involves dehumanization, involves forgetting that the, that it's the person you're dealing with and not knowing it. And um, the Holocaust is actually often brought up in that, in that regard. And 
I'm very impressed. I, I think that sometimes happens. I think we do often think of somebody as less than human. But there's been a lot of arguments that that can't really explain cruelty. So one thing about cruelty is you seem to want to make the other person suffer. And if you really thought of them as a rodent or a cockroach or a rock or a machine, why would you want to make them suffer? Why would you want to make them confess to crimes they know they didn't do? Why would you want to torment them, force them to kill their families and so on? And um, I've just been convinced by people like um, Kate Mann, who's a feminist scholar who's talked about misogyny um, and other people in this area who say that often the cruelties we do to people is because we respond to them as people. It's not like we're caught in a mistake and I, I, I'm torturing somebody because I don't know they're a person. I know they're a person, but there's properties of being a person that really piss people off. If, if I see you as a person, you could be a threat to me. You could, you could be evil. You know, um, the people who were chanting lock her up at Hillary Clinton didn't think of her as a thing or as a cockroach. They thought of her as an evildoer. And so the view I'm exploring is that a lot of the cruelty is, is done in full recognition of other people's humanity. The Hillary example, I think, is illuminating. When I think of Nazis and when I think of, not, not to compare, but when I think of Nazis and I think of Trump supporters responding to QAnon, uh, but also, you know, I'd even take it from, for, to, to, to another extreme, when I think of, say, Bernie Sanders supporters yeah. ra- ra- raging against the, the, the 1%. And in all those cases, the enemy isn't really being dehumanized. If somebody's power is being diminished in these stories, it's the quote-unquote victims. In Nazi Germany, the story was that the Jews are or have been taken the power yeah. from the German people. In QAnon type conspiracies, it's the Clinton machine who right. has been rigging the system. And in Sanders type paranoia, it's the 1%. And then that right. is used as justification for extreme action against these people who have been stealing our yes. power. Yes, and I think that's the analysis that extends broadly. I think it extends to some violent incels. It's not like they, um, people like Elliot Rogers who did a killing spree because no woman would be with him. It's not because uh, he didn't think of women as people. It's that he was enraged that they wouldn't pay him any attention, that they were, they were the whole world to him and they didn't care about him. Um, the slogan for white supremacists regarding the Jews is a very telling slogan. It's, you will not replace us. And you, know, you talk about, you know, that's a lot of respect there. You say to me, you will not replace us. You, you're giving me a lot of power. You're scared of me. You're threatened. And um, I think that's where a lot of this comes from. Well, I'm struggling a little bit to understand why why this differentiation or distinction matters because the the effect is still dehumanizing actions the 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 other side like i'm, I'm thinking yes. of the examples in your book where it's like nazis and cruel treatment yeah. to people for example like they're still feeling dehumanized yes. even if we can can analyze the uh, the 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 actor in this case is not necessarily thinking of these people as not human so I'm, i just want to make yeah. sure i understand like, why does this distinction matter yeah. why do we need to know this it depends what you're interested in you're totally right so if you want to use dehumanizing as a word describing certain sorts of actions there's no doubt that this is all dehumanizing these are people treating people not the way they deserve to be treated the question i'm interested in is what goes on in the minds of perpetrators and then you could have at least two different theories. One theory is we're treating these people so shabbily because we don't think of them as people. 
We're treating them as if they were dogs or vermin or whatever. A second theory says we fully recognize these people's humanity. We're responding to them to punish them or to humiliate them or to have power over them or because we're afraid of them. So at the level of the action, it's plainly dehumanizing, you know, perfectly good term for what's happening. But above that, it's a good question, I think, to ask what's motivating the perpetrators. And so the dehumanizing claim there, everybody would agree with you about the actions, but it's a claim about people's psychology. And that I'm sometimes more skeptical about. Yeah, I, I, I think I share this intuition. I'm coming at it from my discipline, which is often completely incompatible with psychology, and that's, that's history. And from this perspective, the value of currency-like dehumanization changes over time. Just think about slavery. That's an example of real dehumanization. You go and read Darwin's On the Origin of Men, and you see an honest view that people from Africa exhibit a lower wrong version of humanity, even a, a prototype of humanity. And that was hardly a controversial view at the time. And now the question is, did most people in the 19th century truly believe that black people are biologically an inferior species than humans? Or was that just a fiction that they told themselves in order to legitimize their enslavement of people, their ownership and treating like chattel, people that they recognize full well to be human? That's where the historical analysis becomes so interesting and so difficult to resolve. Because on the epistemic level, did Europeans really view black people as subhuman? Were they really dehumanized? Because on one hand, obviously they were, and that was just the thing that gave slavery such a comfortable moral bedding. But on the other hand, the fact that so many people at the time saw slavery to be in absolute irreconcilable contradiction with universal rights implies that they did not really dehumanize them, that they recognized that these are humans and that they are lying to themselves. In other words, well, did they know that the crime of slavery was being perpetrated against fellow humans, which is like you imply in the article, a much more horrifying conclusion. So from my perspective, from the historical perspective, there's just no way of answering this. There's no way of really teasing apart what was happening there epistemically, at least not with any confidence. But again, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm doing history and not, not psychology. Yeah, I, I, had you, I was so with you until the very end. I mean, so I think, <laughs> I, think, I think dehumanization happens sometimes. And then I think you drew out exactly the right contrast. So David Livingston Smith chronicles all these cases. He has a series of book on, books on dehumanization. He's a great guy to talk with. Um, and he comes with all these cases where people of sort of good faith are sitting around and they're saying Africans aren't, are like apes. And they still really believe it. They didn't really believe it. Sometimes they have no, they have, you know, no stakes in it. They're not even collecting. There's philosophers are arguing. They, they think these people are not human. Some, sometimes you have men gathered around saying women are not fully human. And they seem to believe it in good faith. But then there's this other case, which I think happens in a contemporary context too, where you do terrible things to some people, or you want to do terrible things. You want to take their land. You want to take their labor. But you're a good person, you know? You don't want to be doing, doing these things to people. You're, you're not, you're not a monster. 
So you tell yourself, these aren't people I'm doing it to. Right. The, the person committing the atrocity knows that he is doing it unto other humans. And the rhetoric of dehumanization is to quell his very real guilt. Or to, or to, to advertise to others he's not a bad guy. Or to advertise to others, right. Primo Levi has something as a story um, from, from Auschwitz where, where, you know, and I've never sort of thought of it this way, but it fits this way of talking, which is, you know, um, there's Jews being transported to a concentration camp and they, they have no, you know, and they're out, they're let out of a train and they're sort of, you know, squatting in the fields, you know, how much clothes they haven't bathed for a long time because they've been prisoners. And basically one SS officer says, look, they're animals. And you could see the story there bringing something like that. So it's okay what we're doing. We're fine. And, and I have a feeling that as a society, we often look to places like prisons and, and, and see them in that way. We say, look, you know, if, if we had to confront the fact that these are people we're treating so badly, it would be unbearable. So we say, well, not people. Homeless people too. Homeless, that's right. Which I think gets to this idea of visibility versus... In invisibility, and which ties back in with with empathy, right? I think believe I think some parts in the book you you note that if you really are that empathetic to people, you're and someone's suffering, your immediate response is often to run away and not yes. look at the thing because you don't yes. want to feel bad. Yes, um, yeah, it, it says something about human nature. I'll tell myself, which is I could be walking down the street and there's a homeless person there, and it's not like I give money to the homeless person. Sometimes I don't. It's not like I walk past them because I don't care. I cross the street. So I don't fall under the sort of pull that will make me feel bad. Mm. And I think... Uh, avoid the gravitational yes, pull yes. Of, of emotional responsibility. Yes, yes. Um, and that says something about our psychology. It doesn't say something nice about our psychology. We're not psychopaths. We're not monsters. <laughs> we just want to right. avoid circumstances that make us feel bad about no, ourselves. And, and that's why I, I really like this 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 point about dehumanization it's it's both it shows that there is no real distinction or there's no bright line between the moral behavior and the the amoral because it's it's the same impulses are constantly in interplay with each other and the desire to to uh, draw the curtain and hide the the massacre that is happening in uh, outside in the street is from the same urge that, that tells us like massacres are wrong and <laughs> we'll try to fight it, but at the same time allows us to just avoid it. Like, yes. okay, this is not, this is not nothing to do with me. I don't need to think about this right now. Yeah. But we, but it, but ultimately chose that whether it's the Jews that are being massacred or the, you know, or, or immigrants that are being, being put to in, in cages or our own citizens that are being thrown into prison our instinct is to care about them. We just override that instinct. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, um, I think a lot of our behaviors, which would otherwise be mysterious can be understood by saying that we're, we're moral creatures, but we're also imperfect. And, um, and what I try to argue in my empathy book is that we're at our very best when we sort of liberate ourselves from certain impulses. Um, and we try to be fair and we try to be kind. And, uh, you know, and I think we, you know, we're going to fail, but, but we, might, we, might, we might do better than we're doing now. You write in the book, too, that you've, you've, you were surprised that you've gotten pushback on this idea of this idea of that we should strive to be objective and we should strive to be fair. 
<laughs> I was wondering if you would mind unpacking, like, why, what, what is it that people are responding against when you say that, um, and why do you feel like it's illogical? <laughs> that's so. That's boy, you read to the end. It's very rare. <laughs> you know, nobody reached the end of the book, so you put whatever stuff you want at the end of the book. Um, uh, yeah, so so I've I've you know argued that empathy is biased and everything, and we should be better to have impartiality. And there's all sorts of arguments one could could raise against this. Um, you know, you could say, "Oh, empathy is better than what you think," or you know, there's different ways of arguing against me. One thing I've been utterly puzzling is, and I've I've heard this from different sources that impartiality and fairness is some sort of it doesn't exist, and maybe it shouldn't be what we should aspire to. And, but I can't take seriously people who, who say this. I don't think they believe it themselves. I think what they want, I think what they're worried about is they don't want to have a morality that doesn't grant sort of special privileges and special rights to some groups of people. And maybe they don't want a morality that they see as, as unduly cruel to minority groups or cruel to, to, to um, they, they want to leave some room for certain sorts of bias. I think that's fine, but I think that the bias itself has to be justified by sort of neutral principles. For somebody to deny the importance of impartiality leaves them without tools to object to somebody who says, well, I'm just going to hire white people because I'm white. Or I don't care about black people being thrown to prison because I'm not black. And those, those claims, which I think we should be really... A, you know, we should be sensitive to the immorality of those parochial claims um, could only be argued against if you could step above bias. So I think the idea that that fairness itself is a bad idea is not is not really coherent. I realize I haven't done what you would ask me to do, which is sort of defend the view that's argued against me. <laughs> normally, I'm, I mean, normally I'm, I think I could do that, but I find it hard in this case. <laughs> I think it, from my perspective, I feel like there's a desire, there's just a desire f for people to accept that there is no such thing as objectivity. And to, I think it kind of comes to a similar place where you're coming to, to actually, which is that we need to acknowledge the biases we have, but yet move to past them. And I think your point is that we can't move past them without a more rational mindset and and it seems like they're they might be getting stuck at that at that point they just they just want to really hammer home the point that you know there's no such thing as no bias and in fact the biases that exist are going to time and time again impact a certain group of people and we have to be very mindful of that yeah yeah and and for me the very notion of bias a word like bias is a word that presupposes something that's not a bias it's like a word like mistake implies that there's some way of doing it right. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think maybe here's a better way to, I, I think the most generous view of the objection is for people to say, they're not denying that there's in principle some objective standards. Maybe they're just suspicious of people who say, I have some objective standards. Mm -hmm. I mean, the psychologist uh, rendering of it, which is there's some research on people who are sexist and how they judge job applications. And they often give responses that exclude the woman from the job. And whenever they do so, their justification applies to some objective standard. Well, not enough years of experience or not high enough on the set as an objective standard. But they shuffle around the objective standard to achieve the end that they want. Mm. And I can imagine that kind of where you say you're objective, but you're not. 
But then the answer to that is do better at being objective. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. it's like somebody saying, you know, oh, you're trying to do mathematics, but but and and using doing arithmetical calculations, but you're making a mistake. But the answer to that is this is not to give up on arithmetic, it's just try to do it better. And also even acknowledging that you can never really reach 100% doesn't mean you shouldn't strive yeah. for it. That's right. That's right. And it goes back to what you were saying about journalism before, which is you pointed out, well, there's so much data and so on and, and, and conflicting experts. It's all true. But you can do a better job and a worse job. And, you know, and there's always going to be room for some mistakes and some, and some problems. But, but there's such a thing as really crap bias journalism and really good, you know, based on the facts journalism. So... <laughs> I, I don't know exactly how to frame it to you as a question, but it's just something that I really wanted to kind of get your thoughts five years later. I, in, in preparing for this interview, I was uh, listening to some interviews that you've been given through the past okay. five years. One of them was, um, uh, I think, with Sam Harris and right before or right after the Republican uh, primary debate, the first primary debate with Trump. And you know, bracket aside the, the, the fact that you both took for granted that Trump is not going to win, which, which had a, a very quaint quality. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, I'll, 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 I'll cop to that. I'll cop to that. I, I that you one. were almost charmed by Trump at the time because like, you could look at it as such a, it's just a fun, quirky anomaly that, that obviously should not be taken seriously. But what you did take seriously, which I, which I think was really important, was that a lot of the other candidates, I think, I think uh, Cruz and Fiorina specifically, if I'm not mistaken, were talking about how life begins at conception and taking that idea very literally. And you, you made a very strong argument that if people really took that idea seriously, if their audiences actually took their, their arguments to their moral extent, took them literally, not, not just literally, but also took it to its conclusion as a moral statement, they would have been appalled. Like they, 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 it's clear that all, all those arguments are just posturing and none of, nobody is expecting them to really go all the way. I think that's how we put it. And I'm just wondering if that's true, because especially now, five years later, and a lot of things have changed. Both the, the whole conversation has gotten off the rails, and, and partly because of Trump, partly because of the reactions to Trump, partly because of the way that media is disseminated now, that it's so, it allows for a lot of really bad, quick takes to, 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 to infiltrate and be contagious. And as a result, I, I don't know, my experience of the way that the conversation in, in, in the, this country works, it happens right now, and I don't think it's uniquely American. I'm, I'm seeing it percolating to other countries as well. There is such moral fuzziness where I think there's no real regard to most moral arguments that are being proposed and almost exclusively an alliance with the, with the team that is proposing those arguments, which... I don't know if you're feeling that. I don't know if you, if you see it as well, but I, I, I'm getting that sense and it really frightens me because I have, when you become so aligned with a team to the point where no matter how crazy the arguments are, you're going to boost for them. I, I, I see this potentially leading to yeah. really dark outcomes. It's interesting. I actually think that people do have heartfelt moral views. Maybe politicians less than most in some way. They may have, have values, but, they don't, but many people do have heartfelt moral views and real views that they hold. But in the political realm, so much of what you see, and you know, we talked about Twitter, so much of what you see on social media is people having these very strong moral statements 
that they don't believe. They literally don't believe it. What they're saying is, I'm part of a team. And this is what you say when you're part of a team. So you find people with some... With, okay, one, just a small criticism, just a small example, bringing it back to what I said before. A critic of Trump um, basically went to town on Trump calling some people animals and said, this is dehumanization, this is disgusting, this is the most terrible thing. And it took people 10 minutes, probably less, to find a series of tweets where she described her enemies as animals, including Donald Trump. <laughs> and she didn't really have anything in saying This is just a good tool to use against Donald Trump. People, people, it is a standard game in politics for me to say what Donald Trump did is totally disgusting and reprehensible. And then people pointing out that when Obama did exactly the same thing. I thought it was a great thing. And people aren't conscious that they're doing this, but I think so much of moral talk these days, and particularly moral disapproval, moral outrage, is, is affiliative language. Um, and, you know, I don't know, at one point, um, some politician used the term sexual preference instead of sexual orientation. And then people were outraged. And then again, another five minutes, some of the people were most outraged, you know, six months ago, used the term sexual preference because that was fine by then. And so in some way, I don't think any of this is harmless. It devalues moral talk and moral talk is very important. Um, and, and I do think, I do think this is a problem and it's a recent problem. So I've been convinced by, by Steve Pinker and others not to go around saying, oh, this is the worst things have ever been. Because when you look at things objectively, it's, it's actually pretty good in all sorts of ways now. But this is one thing that really is the worst, which is political polarization in America. Um, we are polarized like we've never been before. There used to be studies where you asked Democrats, do you have Republican friends? What would you think if your, uh, your kid married a Republican? People say, fine, yes, I do, a lot of friends and so on. Same with Republicans towards Democrats. This is all gone. Tremendous polarization, in part because now everybody has their own news sources, which is genuinely crazy. Right. We just had David French on, whose recent book follows the argument that there is nothing that brings us together more than it pulls us apart right now, the, the two Americas. And, and, and by the way, people like David French, I think, illustrate a really good thing which has happened the last few years, which is people have shown themselves to have some moral courage. It would have been very simple for a lot of conservatives to just go ahead with Trump and go ahead with the Republicans and people like David French and Jonah Goldberg, I think, really stood up and did their great credit. Absolutely. But you can also see the, the price that they're still paying for this. I, with the, the first comment I got when I posted our conversation with David French is, was something along the lines of, David French is a traitor yep. and he, yep. he made me want to slit my wrist and I stopped reading National Review even he, though he hasn't written for National Review for like a yeah. year. To me, it's more scary than just the polarization. The polarization is maybe the, you know, the, the propelling force under, underlying it. But that combined with the salaryying of the media, combined with the low cost of, of broadcasting thoughtless opinions. And, 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 and right now, for instance, when you're looking at all the claims about voter fraud and the conspiracies, there's, there's no penalty for people yeah. 
spewing out the, the wildest claims with you know they they would it, on twitter that it's now the new thing in striving crazy people are using the um the the siren emoji to just to let you know that this is a really important piece of news of like five voting machines were confiscated yeah. because they are proven trace with venezuelan uh hackers it's um and 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 and, and you know it there is a comedy to it but there's all but i the moral degradation that is happening there twi- sure twitter is not real life but it has an effect it has an effect on the way that people think a, a lot of people are being energized by this yeah. and it's numbing the ability to think critically of what goals are we actually trying to promote and instead we're just stuck in this pointless internecine asinine cultural warfare we no longer have any higher value than just yeah. destroying the other side I don't know. I think I feel like it's much, much worse than than the mere fact of polarization. I agree. And and, you know, Trump not accepting the results of the election. It's I think it's bad in ways we have been experienced for years and years. I think it's kind of I think basically what's going to happen is he's going to make some money out of it. It's going to bolster his position for 2024. But also it's going to mean roughly, I don't know, a quarter of Americans think that the election was stolen by Biden. And, and that is really awful. And this will educate the way they think about elections in the future and yes. inform the way they approach a political system as a whole. Yes. I mean, let's just accept it as a sunk cost that Biden's presidency is going to be delegitimized. Fine. The other side can say that Trump's Trump, Trump presidency has yeah. been delegitimized from... Right. So, fine. The, that in itself would not have bothered me if you can... Okay, let's, let's just get over it. And <laughs> you lost one, we lost one. Can we please move on? I mean... That might happen, but I, I think I think we know that it's not going to refer to the mean. I think you're right. I think I think you, I think you're right. I think this. I think it's awful. You're, a lot of people thought Trump's election, including Hunter's election, was a, a, an enormous disaster of epic proportions. However, it didn't lead me to be against elections. It didn't lead me to think that 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 elections don't matter anymore and we should do without them and do something else. And I think this is going to happen. This is what Trump this is what Trump aspires to. And he aspires to basically destroy the country, not because he wants to destroy the country, but because this is the best, this is the most fruitful way for him to get what he wants personally. Right. We're all held to the erratic whims of one democratically illiterate person. Yes. That, yes. But it's not but it's not even I, I don't want to I, also... I don't want to put it all on on him. It's the it's the system around him. It's his facilitators, it's the enablers, and it's the media ecosystem that that thrives right, on this going. insanity um yeah I'm, i'll stop ranting sorry <laughs> yeah. well i I'm, I'm sympathetic to everything you're saying unfortunately i wish you were wrong um just to end the conversation on a slightly different note if it's okay with you one last question here uh <laughs> i just I, I wanted to ask you this question if you could invite one person dead or alive to a dinner party which 18th century Scottish economist. <laughs> Why? Why that would be Adam Smith, I think. <laughs> what, what a great, what a wonderful question. It would be Adam Smith. Uh, you know, I was, I have to say, I would, if I could ask him a question, I'm not, I'm, I'm very polite. I'm Canadian and I wouldn't normally ask somebody this, but I was at, I was at a, a, a conference where um, we're surrounded by Adam Smith scholars. And there was a heated debate over whether he died a virgin. 
<laughs> I mean, his views are fascinating. He's an extraordinary guy and he's incredibly gossipy. Are, are those people who c- come in, come dressed up as Adam Smith? <laughs> they, were, they, were, they were not Adam Smith, uh, uh, you know, what do you call them? <laughs> Cosplay, I guess. <laughs> Cosplayers. Um, yeah. But, um, but he, he was uh, extraordinarily close to his mother. He seemed to have no deep, intimate relationships with, with women and perhaps very few with men. And, he, you know, unlike, you know, David Hume, who was like a partier and, and popular and, you know, but Smith was, well, but Smith, but Smith was, uh, was such a deep thinker, such a deep thinker and, and, and a wonderful teacher and a generous scholar and a kind man. Mm-hmm. Big Adam Smith fan. To anybody who didn't get the joke, while we, as Vanessa and I were prepping for the interview and reading your books, we kept coming across more and more Adam Smith references across several books. (laughs) And every once in a while, we'd just holler at each other and be, hey, found another one. I know. I know. I'm like a guy who's who's read like one book and I keep talking about it. So my book is The Theory of Moral Sentiments. That's the one book I've read. And so I just talk about it a lot. But so wait, sorry, the, the question, the one question that you would ask him then, you, you would ask him if he no. died a virgin or not? Is that? No, <laughs> for, I, no for, I, I'm just, that's, I would never ask him that. Um, <laughs> uh, I wouldn't come, I just wanted, I'd want to talk with him. I mean, yeah. you read a theory of moral sentiments, he's, he has a whole section on friendship and, and on mm. what it feels like when your friend's more successful than you are, what it feels like when you're more successful than your friend. So much freaking wisdom there. He's such a mm. joy to read. He's, you know. One of these, these great intellects. A big fan. Paul Bloom, thank you so much. I got your name right. Yay! Yay. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so so much. I, I really hope we can talk again after your uh, new book mm-hmm. is out. I, talk more about suffering. I hope so. And I gotta say, this has been a great conversation. You guys really did your homework and thought this through and this great question, great <laughs> idea. So I'm very grateful. Well, you, you, you wrote the books. The least we could do is read them. <laughs> well, I always that makes sense. Well, thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you very much. It means a lot. This is a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Please follow us on uncertain.substack.com and wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us at UncertainPod on Twitter and Instagram. And if you can give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that would be just lovely. Otherwise, spread the word. And until next time, stay sane.